Hi, and welcome to Unlimited, the podcast platform that gives voice to remarkable mothers and women from the Arab world to inspire, engage, and drive growth. We can discuss breast cancer in the UAE without reaching out to the first female surgeon in the country. So, for this new episode of our Unlimited groundbreaking series, we are honored to welcome Dr. Horia Kazim. Born in the Emirates to a family of doctors and daughter of the first surgeon in the UAE, becoming a doctor was probably expected of the young Horia. She stood out in the male-dominated sector and would go on to become the first female surgeon in the UAE. She was also the first to openly and publicly address what had been considered a taboo subject for decades, breast cancer. She founded the Well Woman Clinic, which offers women a safe and welcoming environment where they can receive professional advice regarding any health concerns. She also launched Dubai First Breast Cancer Support Group and charity, Breast Friends, now supported by the Anjalila Foundation to promote the early detection of breast cancer, facilitate medical treatment, and most importantly, to establish and fund local research into the epidemiology of breast cancer in the UAE. With a double fellowship from the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland and England, as well as a Master's of Public Health in Epidemiology from the University of Texas School of Public Health, Dr. Horia is recognized as the UAE's most prominent breast surgeon. And she's also a proud mother of two. How did she do it? Let's hear from Dr. Horia herself and her unlimited mission to fight breast cancer. Dr. Ruria, welcome to Unlimited. Or should I say benvenuta, as you look so Italian. Listen, my husband is Italian-American. Whenever we go to Italy, they speak to me in Italian, and they speak to him in English. It's hysterical. <laughs> and I tell you more, you remind me of an esteemed Italian colleague of my father, who is an oncologist as well. But I know that time is very precious for you, so let's start. And let's start by addressing the elephant in the room, the taboo about cancer and specifically about breast cancer. Why is there still a fear or a sense of embarrassment to talk about it at times or even just to name it? <laughs> It's a superstitious thing. We have that here as well. And we don't uh, say the word. But you know, what's interesting is um, when I, tra so I trained, um, I went to medical school in Ireland and um, We were not, um, when we, you know, the first couple of years, you're just in the classroom or in the lab. And then when you finally start uh, in the hospitals, you know, they give you some rules, um, you know, about communication, about courtesy, about, and, but one of the things that um, we were not allowed to say in front of the patient was what they call the C word. So you couldn't act. So we had other words for cancer. So if we were discussing a patient in front of the patient, you know, you would use like, you know, the Latin word for, uh, uh, we'd say neoplasia, which is new growth rather than cancer. Can't say the word cancer. So, and you know, it wasn't that long ago. And so people still, and this was in Ireland. So, because I used to think it's just here that we're superstitious, but no, this was our rules, not allowed. That was over 30 years ago. And once completed your studies abroad, you came back to the UAE. What scenario did you find and how has it changed in the past three decades? Yeah, so I came back um, as, a, as a very junior doctor, obviously, um, as an intern. And I joined the government system here. So I was in uh, Rashid Hospital, which is the government hospital. 
And um, I was uh, one of the only women on a surgical team um, at any level, you know, so certainly consultants, mid-level uh, interns, you know, they were all male. Um, so that was one thing. Um, then uh, I started uh, noticing that there was a need for a surgeon, just a female surgeon, not necessarily just breasts. I mean, there were other parts of the body that um, women didn't want to show um, a male surgeon. So their breasts, yes, but things like, you know, hemorrhoids and uh, those sort of things. Um, they prefer me as the most junior on the team to examine them than the consultant. And so I would, uh, I would, I would be with the patient behind the curtain and then the consultant would be on the other side of the curtain. Mm. And I had to describe in words what I found, uh, you know, clinically by examination. So that was, it was quite clear that there was a need for female surgeons. And then when it came to breasts, um, I had worked with uh, breast cancer patients in the, in, when I was in Ireland as a student, but I had never seen these kind of breast cancer patients that I used to see at Rashid Hospital, just really, really um, advanced cases because, you know, cancers are cells that are dividing out of control. And if you don't do anything about it, they just keep growing. They don't stop. And um, so these, you know, as a woman, it, it really shocked me that, that, you know, this could actually happen to your body and that women would actually know that something is there and leave it um, until it got to that point. But why would they leave it to that point? Was it lack of awareness, the taboo itself, or as you said, the lack of female specialists, doctors and surgeons? Yeah, forget screening or awareness. There wasn't any such thing. So, I mean, with screening, we're trying to pick something up before a patient picks it up. So that that was non-existent. But even, you know, a patient picking something up, so you feel a lump and maybe it's a small lump when you first find it and then leaving it to a stage where it's literally growing out of your chest. And yes, it's due to um, maybe a lack of knowledge or um, fear of the of the C word. Um, or, you know, just again, that modesty, you know, not, not, uh, going to not wanting to see a male surgeon. Mm -hmm. So it was, uh, it was terrible. And of course, you know, uh, if you leave a cancer to be in a, to an advanced stage, then most likely you will succumb to that cancer. And so what that then tells the rest of the community is that cancer equals death. So the fear continues. And that's when young Dr. Ria came to the rescue. What did you do at that point that contributed to such an incredible and uh, very needed change? Yes, no. So this is what was, you know, 30 years ago when I was interned. So I, I went back uh, to the UK and the US to train uh, as a breast surgeon. And then I came back and apart from, you know, being a breast surgeon, I, I knew I had to raise the consciousness about this disease in the community. So it was about educating um, people about the disease. And, you know, um, yes, the C word is a scary word, but, you know, in oncology, breast cancer is actually one of the better cancers to have if you have to have a cancer. So it was trying to put things in perspective that, um, yes, people get cancer, but you know, the majority of people are actually going to drop dead of a heart attack than actually get 
breast cancer. So um, it's really trying to take away the fear. And the only way to take away the fear is one is knowledge, but also if they could see it, if they could actually see people who had cancer, had breast cancer, had their treatment, and then went on and lived their life normally. So in order to do that, that women had to pick, number one, pick up their cancers early, number two, have the correct treatment, and then number three, be open and vocal about it. And so that's what we started doing. We used to have a little road show um, where I would take uh, nurses and other patients who were diagnosed um, uh, to the hinterlands of the UAE and to women's groups and do talks and um, examine women and, you know, have uh, survivors speak. And, you know, when, and, and for me, that is always the most powerful uh, tool I had was when they could see, for example, a local lady. And um, when I would go to a local ladies group, for example, and I would take a local lady with me who was working, who had kids, who had had cancer, who'd had her treatment, and then uh, was, was to all intents and purposes, just having a normal life. Definitely. There couldn't be any better testimonial than someone that has gone through it, beat it, and managed to go back to their normal life, to their kids, to their families, to their work, to their lifestyle. Because to new patients, if they could do it, I can do it. And it gives hope. It is. And, you know, and like you said now, you know, what do I see? So, yes, I still see the odd advanced case. Nothing like what I saw 30 years ago. Nothing, thank God. But I still would see some people that could have come earlier. Um, but I have had, you know, probably one of the best compliments anybody paid me was um, another surgeon in another uh, hospital uh, one day just said to me, you know, it's great since you came back to Dubai. And I said, why? And he says, I don't see so many advanced breast cancers anymore. Mm. And that was, oh, I was so busy at that point. I hadn't stopped to really think about it. And it was like, wow, in a relatively short period of time. And it's not just me, by the way. We have the internet as well, had developed in the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. So I think between the information highway and all the work that we've been doing and others now on um, uh, breast awareness and uh, screening centers that have now been set up, that we don't see those horrific cases of breast cancer anymore. And these all allowed in the spam of uh, a generation or even less to go from not even addressing the seaweed to a much more open approach to cancer and the awareness that prevention is crucial because if caught early, cancer is curable, correct? It is, exactly. So if it's caught early, it's definitely curable. Mm. And um, it, it's, you know, it, even the whole treatment for breast cancer, yes, sometimes we have to give chemotherapy, but if you think about the surgery, you know, my sister had thyroid cancer, my, my mom had colon cancer, and even the surgery for those things, it disables you for a while. You can't eat and you can't breathe and you can't taste and you can't swallow and you you know, so many things. I mean, the great thing about breast surgery is that, you know, you don't need your breast for day-to-day -day activities. So you can walk and you can talk and you can breathe and you can eat and you can do everything. So really as a whole, it's a great, well, I don't want to say it's a great cancer to have, but it is. <laughs> How do you preserve your sense of humor and you remain so positive in situations that could be seen, um, honestly, quite dramatic? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I've always, it's just my personality is like that. I mean, you know, uh, I've always been that, you know, the glass is half full kind of person. So it just, that's just how I am, you know. And this approach can make a difference to the patient and their family, I believe, because beside the medical treatment, it's important to take care of the emotional and psychological aspect. So I wonder what support network and facilities are available in the region? Yeah, I mean, you know, it it, it is a very emotive subject. I, and, you know, I don't know why compared to, say, you know, thyroid cancer or colon cancer, breast is, is something that it's, it's a very uh, sort of emotive part of the body. Um, but yes, with any cancer or with any chronic illness, there are psychological issues. It is a shock when, um, when women find out that they have cancer. And it is a, um, it's a bereavement process. It's the same process you go through as if uh, when you lose a family member or a close friend or a job or your home. Um, you have to go through all the different stages of, you know, uh, anger and denial and, and bargaining and depression and, you know, finally coming out at the end where you accept that, uh, gosh, I've got cancer. Um, I find with um, my patients, uh, some, you know, some people go through that quite quickly uh, and come to the acceptance stage. Some go through it relatively slowly. Um, and then, you know, I think we keep you so busy with all the different treatments of, you know, different chemotherapies, which could be weekly or every two to three weeks and um, surgery and then radiation that by the time, you know, you come to the end, which is, you know, could be nine months down the road. I find that that is when it really hits my patients. It's sort of like you have the initial shock. Then you get on with things, you get everything done. And then when finally I say, right, see you in three months, it's like, wait, what? Three months? You know, when you've been coming every week. And then it sort of is like, oh, my God, what did I just do? What did I just go through? So we have um, a support group that we started ooh, how many years now? 15 years ago. And um, and that in itself was a difficult thing to set up, um, especially with um, patients in this region, because as you know, um, people are not very open about things that are close to them, that they don't go around. You know, we don't have an Oprah Winfrey kind of society where you surround <laughs> people all your deepest, darkest secrets. And so that was hard for me to try and get local women or women from the Middle East uh, uh, to come to these meetings um, for themselves initially, because I think that's a powerful uh, thing is to be in that early stage where everything is so overwhelming and then to go into a room full of people who've done their chemo, who've had their surgery, who've had everything and they look lovely and their hair's grown back and they just look completely normal. Um, that is a very powerful message. Um, I, I remember when I had um, uh, my last child was born very, very premature. And I remember she was in a she was in the intensive care for four and a half months. Um, but some of the moms who had had uh, babies, you know, my baby's age and, and even uh, more premature had done these beautiful collages that they pinned up on the wall of the baby unit where they had a picture of their baby looking like mine in an incubator with all the 
tubes and wires and things. And then they had done pictures of them through the years and up until they started school and they'd be mm. in their school uniform. And it was so powerful for me. I'd spent hours in that hallway looking at those pictures because you think your child will never, never wear a school uniform, you know? And then, and then, you know, you see, well, okay, well, if her kid that did it, I could do it. And it's similar with the support group. I mean, women would go, okay, if she can do it, I can do it. And then, you know, um, sometimes women go through another phase where, you know, they may not feel they need a support group because they've done their treatment and they feel fine. But then I encourage them to stay because I need them to be there for the new patients mm. uh, who can then look up to them, you know. And of course, they never say no. They, uh, they, they, they're, they're some of the most amazing women um, in how selfless and caring they've been. So, yes, yeah, so we try to take care of the, the, the whole patient, you know. And referring to Breast Friends, who can access the support group? So Breast Friends, I mean, obviously it started as a breast cancer support group, but over the years, because there were no other support groups for other types of cancers, we've taken um, women with ovarian cancer, brain cancer, skin cancers, lung cancers, <laughs> So basically any woman, so far it's just women, um, who have had any kind of cancer, we're really happy to have you. A lot of what we do, you know, I mean, we try to get involved with diet, uh, exercises, yoga, um, uh, coaching, uh, mindfulness, you know, all these things are not breast specific, you know. So they're, they're relevant to anybody who has cancer or really any woman. Mm -hmm. So we're quite happy to have uh, women who have had other cancers. We have a closed uh, Facebook group. So um, you have to request to join. And, uh, and then once you're on the group, you can ask whatever, you know, the, the only people that see it are other people who've had cancer. That's wonderful. Do you know if there are any similar initiatives and support groups uh, across the Emirates? Yes, I'm sure. Um, I know Friends of Cancer Patients were running one. Um, there is one in Abu Dhabi called Bosom Buddies. And there was one in Alain. Um, I'm trying to remember the name, something like Angels. It's good to know that there is a support network across the country because with the high population of expats living in UAE, not everyone has a family here to support them. So looking at it, not only from a medical, but also from a social perspective, if and when diagnosed with breast cancer, do you see patients continuing the treatment in the region or choosing to go home where they can rely on the support of their extended family members? Sure. And it, it makes complete sense. I mean, some, um, some patients, they have very young families and they don't want to go away because it will disrupt the whole family setup. Um, some who are mostly, I find the ones who are single are the ones that, uh, you know, need their families around um, and they will choose to go home. Sometimes it's a, a cost thing, an insurance issue. You know, there are many reasons why people choose to have their treatment uh, away. So, um, yes, but I mean, obviously in Dubai and the UAE as a whole, we have you know, everything we need to treat breast cancer and more. I mean, I've had patients who have been treated in the UK who their oncologist there felt they needed a, a particular new drug, which was expensive and not available there, but we could get it here. Interesting. 
And another aspect linked to the multicultural population we live in is that it could give you the opportunity to understand if ethnicity plays any role in the disease. And to this point, is there any link between genetics and breast cancer? Yes, there definitely are. So, I mean, um, breast cancer, uh, if you look at it in um, in Europe, in, um, uh, in in the UK, in Ireland, in um, the United States or Australia, New Zealand, it's actually a disease of postmenopausal women, with the majority of cases happening uh, in the postmenopause. And the median age in these countries is somewhere around 62. Um, in the UAE, in the whole of the Middle East, North Africa, and Indian subcontinent, our median age is around 45, 46, 47. And mm-hmm. uh, with the majority of our patients, I'm talking like 80% of our patients are under the age of 50. So it's a completely different disease. And initially, you know, I thought maybe it is because the UAE attracts a particular age group uh, who come here to work. But even if you look at it by nationality, and certainly if you look at other other countries in the region who have a more homogenous uh, society, um, they have exactly the same numbers. So there must be something genetic going on, um, though we're not sure. So there are studies that are being done um, together with uh, the Al Jaliva Foundation and, and others who are looking at the genetics of breast cancer um, in this region. Which brings me to ask you, what are the major risk factors linked to breast cancer? Um, there are lots of, of uh, risk factors that people talk about. Family history is one of them. Um, and obviously age, no matter you know what age you are, the, the older you get, the more likely you are to get it. Um, uh, if, you have your, if you start your periods early or you have your menopause late. And a lot of these things are not necessarily things we can... Um, do something about, but there are some risk factors which we can modify. For example, um, weight. Um, BMI is very much associated with breast cancer. Um, So keeping your weight in the normal BMI uh, range. Um, Exercise has, uh, and there have been multiple studies that looked at exercise and breast cancer and the risk of breast cancer is much less. And even if you've had breast cancer, the risk of it coming back is also less if you take, if you do exercise, moderate exercise. This is not, you know, you don't have to join a gym. It's just walking half an hour a day. So some of these things, so weight is a big one. Alcohol is another one. Uh, Alcohol increases your risk of breast cancer, even a small amount of alcohol. So that's something that you can modify. Now, people may not want to, but... (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least now we can all take an informed decision. Yes, so definitely. uh, So those are things that you can actually do. Um, You can can eat well, you can uh, not be overweight, you cannot drink. I mean, those are, you know, and there's now a lot being written about what we call epigenetics. So even if you have a family history um, of breast cancer, even if you're carrying a mutation... Um, we feel that there are ways that you can um, probably affect how that gene is expressed. 
So we know that if you have a gene for breast cancer, it doesn't mean 100% you'll get breast cancer, but it's pretty close. It might be about 80%. But we know that we can actually um, maybe make it better, make those odds better by having a good diet, by, you know, not drinking, by exercising. Um, so I think that's actually quite an exciting uh, area right now, uh, which is epigenetics. Talking about research, do you have to rely on international data and international researches, or is there any local body focused on uh, breast cancer researches in the region? We have had to look, uh, uh, I mean, obviously most of the data that we have on uh, breast cancer comes from outside of here, of, of this region, and which is why um, the Algelila Foundation specifically funds locally based research. Some of that has Uh, that's ongoing right now is on uh, is to do with breast cancer so it's it's actually quite exciting to see what's going to come out of this have you been involved or will you be involved anyhow yes we're looking at the the one i'm looking at is is on the genetics um we know for example there are certain groups of people for example ashkenazi jews have their own mutation that increases their risk of breast cancer So it'd be interesting to see what we find. I can see your pioneering approach being very rooted in everything you do at any stage of your life and career. Not only you were the first female surgeon in UAE, now you're becoming one of the first to be involved locally in, the, in this research. Yeah, it wasn't done that way. <laughs> just, I was just following what I wanted to do and where I saw there was a need. It just so happened that, you know, it works out like that. Did you receive any influence or pressure knowing that you're coming from a family of doctors? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as I've gotten older and I've, obviously I've got children myself, but it's it's one of those things that I realized, you know, your family plays such a big role. You probably understand this, such a big role in your life. And, um, you know, my father, uh, mashallah, is uh, 93 on Thursday. Mabruk. He worked until a couple of years ago. He's a surgeon as well. And I grew up not knowing that there were other options. I grew up knowing that, I mean, it didn't have to be medicine, though that was obviously something that was pushed in the family. But whatever that we chose and we had to choose, I didn't know that there were, that I had another option, that I didn't have to. Uh, study as hard as I did or work as hard as I do and I remember one day coming uh, I was coming to the office from surgery I'd finished surgery and I uh, drove uh, to the mall to pick up uh, those those days they didn't have the drive-through uh, um, uh, Starbucks to get a coffee uh, so I drove in and I was standing there waiting for my order and I'm looking around and I could see women in their sweat clothes and they look like they've been to the gym it's sort of mid-morning and they're having a nice relaxing coffee and I thought my god you know I've taken the wrong road somewhere <laughs> went to the office and I called my dad and I said dad you didn't tell me I had options why didn't you tell me <laughs> and I'm sure you had to compromise quite a lot to become who you are today that's the family I grew up with like it would have been really odd you know, if I didn't do what I do, you know. But how do you switch off from work, from the patients, from the kids, from the world? I walk. Um, I, I like to walk. I like to hike. 
And uh, we live near to the beach. So that's my switch off is two things. One is I like to get up really early um, because it's the only time I have where no one's actually speaking to me or asking me to do something. So I get up about four and I have a nice sort of uh, hour, hour and a half to myself. Mm. uh, And I like to walk. Um, I find that's therapeutic and I don't walk, uh, unfortunately, I, I keep thinking I should walk listening to podcasts, but <laughs> I'm trying to practice my mindfulness while I walk. <laughs> From your morning walk to your life journey, based on what I read about you and based on this conversation, it's truly what we would define an unlimited journey. You definitely explored and challenged all possibilities which leads me to ask you what we call our paramount question. What does unlimited mean to you? Unlimited. Oh, well, you just never stop. You know, it's endless. And, you know, so now, as you said, the research is my next uh, step and teaching. So now I'm at the age where it's time to give back. It's time to um, pass on to the next generation. Um, And I do a lot of uh, you know, trying to encourage uh, women to do surgery. It's, it's uh, you know, when, I, when, when you said, you know, that I was the first female surgeon in the UAE, it's true, but I wasn't the first one who tried. And it's a difficult field for sure. That's why there's not a lot of female surgeons anywhere in the world. But it is also, you know, in this part of the world, we have other sociocultural Um, issues that we have to deal with. So we have to, you know, we have a lot of pressure put on us to uh, get married and have kids. And, you know, and truthfully, I can tell you, I couldn't have done this if I hadn't postponed having kids. I just, I couldn't see how I could have done it. I know there are people who've done it, but I couldn't. (laughs) When I was thinking along the lines of doing surgery and, you know, yes, my dad's a surgeon, but I didn't have anybody to look up to. I didn't have any faces that looked like me, not a woman, not a woman of color, not somebody that I could go, you know what, if she could do it, I can do it. And I had, and, and I think that, as I said, that's an important message and a powerful message um, to pass on. So that's what I try to do now is, uh, and they keep me, the young, the kids in medical school now, and certainly the kids in this generation, they give me so much hope. They really do. They're bright. They ask the right questions. They do the right things. And, you know, I have a lot of hope for this generation coming up now. A generation that is blessed for having such an incredible, inspiring and positive role model. Thank you, Dr. Uriya, for everything you've done and everything you're still doing day after day for all of us. Truly unlimited. Thank you for listening. We hope you found it inspiring and fulfilling. Please subscribe to Unlimited on your favorite podcast app so you won't miss out on our next stories. To learn more about our content, please log on to our website and follow us at unlimited.me on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter and help us building a truly unlimited community. Thank you.